You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're covering part two of the life of Gladys Aylward. Two important things before we get into Gladys's story some more. Number one, I realized right after last week's episode launched that I had pronounced her name incorrectly, at least her last name. And I guess I'd only read it and never heard it, but I looked it up and sure enough, it is actually Aylward. So we'll use that from here on out. And number two, I have finished Gladys's book and it is incredible, just story after story of God's hand moving throughout her life and using her in the lives of others. I was thinking I've got to keep this to a two-parter, but I would have to skip over so many important and inspiring details of her life, and it would just be too rushed, and that would be unfair to you as a listener, and also unfair to the life of Gladys. So we're going to do one more episode after this one to truly appreciate the way God moved throughout her lifetime. So with that being said, let's pick up where we left off. Yancheng was a beautiful city. It was nestled between two large mountains with a city wall around it and many narrow, winding streets snaking through the city. The city was dotted with temples, which were hundreds of years old. The roads surrounding the city were not really roads at all. They were uneven, muddy mule paths. The city was on a mule track, which ran from Beijing in northern China to Henan, 500 miles to the south. Mrs. Lawson had purchased an old, dilapidated building, which had been previously a large, expansive home with three camel stables in her courtyard. Miss Lawson explained that she had bought this property on the cheap because the local spirit was haunted, which was just fine by her. She planned to turn it into an inn for the muleteers to have a clean place to sleep, eat, and in the evenings they could regale them with the gospel through stories. As they were fixing up the inn, Gladys asked Miss Lawson how they planned to get the muleteers into the inn because they were foreigners whom the Chinese locals did not trust. Mrs. Lawson asked Gladys if she'd ever seen the owners of the inns in other towns outside the gate calling to people and pulling the lead mule of the mule train towards the inn. By the time that the rest of the train got to the inn, they were so tired they didn't really care, so they stayed the night. Miss Lawson said that's going to be your jahub. All you have to do is call it the phrase, Mayo chow chong, mayo tsao tsao, how how how, lie lie lie. We have no bugs, we have no fleas, good good good, come come come. Then she would grab the lead mule and pull him towards the inn. They hired a cook who could kind of cook, Mr. Liu and Mrs. Lawson told the stories, and Gladys grabbed the mules. The first time she tried, the lead mule rider literally jumped off his mule and took off running, scared to death this little four foot ten inch woman. Eventually, though, they were able to get the mules in and word spread quickly among the muleteers. This was a good, clean inn that provided stories for free, which many of them did not. The gospel began to spread among the muleteers, and they heard tales of it reaching the entire 500-mile stretch between Beijing and Henan. Gladys didn't speak Chinese yet, so for months she learned the stories Mr. Liu and Mrs. Lawson told until she was able to begin telling them herself. Months passed, and she became conversational. About a year after she got there, Mrs. Lawson's health declined drastically. Shortly before she died, she said, God called you to my side, Gladys, and answered my prayers. He wants you to carry on my work here. He will provide. He will bless you and protect you. After her death, Gladys was the only European left in that part of China. She and Mr. Luke continued to run the inn, but without Mrs. Lawson's supplemental support coming from Scotland, there was not enough money to pay the cook, Mr. Liu, or to feed Gladys. And she began to worry that God was calling her away from Yancheng. One morning, the cook mentioned that she should go bow to the Mandarin. She was confused. Who is the Mandarin and why should I bow to him? 
A mandarin was the title of the provincial governor or magistrate. He yielded a great deal of power and was very feared and respected. She didn't know how to bow to the mandarin or have anything nice to wear, so she didn't have to worry too much about that. Until about three days later when he came to her. He was an impressive man. He dressed ornately and carried a long, curved sword, as did two of his companions. Mrs. Aylward, he said, I have come about your feet. My feet? Yes, you have big feet. This is never something you want to hear as a woman. The new government has decreed that the practice of foot binding will be abolished throughout China. The government makes the decrees, but how can I enforce them? A man cannot inspect a woman's feet. A woman must do that. But there is no one in this district with unbound feet but you. No one else can make the journey to inspect feet. Will you become an official foot inspector? He told Gladys that it paid a little bit and would keep her fed. She would be accompanied by two soldiers who would help with the enforcement. As a condition of accepting the job, she said that if she were to do this, she would be sharing the gospel as she went. The Mandarin assured her this is absolutely fine. After all, if they become a Christian, they no longer bind their feet. I want to take a moment to explain exactly what foot binding is and why it's so terrible. For the longest time, I thought it just meant that they kind of roped their feet in so that they couldn't grow. And then I read a book about it and uh, I couldn't finish the book. It it was pretty gruesome. So I'm going to just kind of go into a little bit of detail about what they did. They would break the foot in several places of very young girls, usually around four to six years old, and they would bind it up to form a lotus flower. They would break the foot so the toes folded under the sole, and the girls were made to walk on the feet almost immediately to break the toes. And this helped deaden the nerves as well. The pus and the calluses would be scraped off, bandages changed. The process would take about two or three years, and 10% of the girls would die from gangrene or other infections. So it's a pretty inhumane, horrifying practice. Gladys and her two soldiers would come into town and inspect every home in the village searching for children with bound feet. Sometimes in the evening, the villagers would come to the inn where she was lodging for the night and ask to tell them stories and teach them more choruses. So for months and then years, she traveled from village to village until she became known and welcomed and made many friends. She was called the storyteller, and the villagers never tired of hearing the Old Testament stories told over and over again. She said she was amazed at the way that God had opened up opportunities for service. I had longed to go to China, she said, but never in my wildest dreams had I ever imagined that God would overrule in such a way that I would be given entrance into every village home, have authority to banish a cruel and horrible custom, have government protection, and be paid to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as I inspected feet. She really embraced these people God had sent her to, and she in every way, from dress to dialect to even the way that she thought, embraced this new way of life. In 1936, she made it official and became a Chinese citizen, taking the name Iwada. Although she made many friends, she still felt isolated, and she prayed for years that God would send someone from England to help her in her work, but no one came. She felt her dreams of having a husband and a child fading from her. During her time as a foot inspector, she became fast friends with the Mandarin, and it had begun as a simple debriefing relationship, but it had blossomed into a real friendship. She was on her way to meet with him when she noticed a woman with a small child sitting by the roadside. The sun was fierce and beat down on the child's head, exposing the sores and the filth that covered her body. She looked very weak. Gladys cautioned her against leaving the child in the sun. The woman snapped at her. She's my child. It's no business of yours what I do with it. Gladys was furious as the woman told her that it didn't matter what happened to the child. She could get another one tomorrow or the day after that. This woman was buying and selling children with no repercussions. She tried to get Gladys to buy the girl, but she refused and turned away and went to the Mandarin to vent about the vile practice. He told her that nothing could be done. They had to wait until an edict came down to abolish it, much like they did with foot binding. Still angry, Gladys returned home. The woman and the child were still at the roadside. A shilling, the woman said. You can have her for a shilling. 
She looked at this little girl, unwanted and defenseless, and shoved what little money she had into the woman's hand and took the little girl home. Within a few days, she was like a new child, and Gladys felt appreciative of a child to love and care for. Within a few months, little Ninepence, as she was named, brought another little boy home, who in turn brought two children home, and soon she had about 20 children living with her. They never had much, but they never went without either. Her heart was very full, and she said, At least I could not complain of being lonely. How often I craved for a moment's peace. Now I have to skip ahead a little bit. There is so much here, and I've tried to pick and choose the most relevant segments of her life to tell you. Legitimately, every word of her book is fantastic, and I hate that I have to pick and choose so much, but to keep this going, I will do so. Many little churches have been planted throughout the mountains. A mission had been started in Yongchang, and many people were coming to Christ. God was moving in China. Japan invaded China in 1937, and China was dealing with some infighting between the nationalists on one side and Mao's communists on the other, and this created a tumultuous political landscape. The nationalists and the communists agreed to come together, at least for a time, to fight the Japanese, who were swiftly and brutally making their way throughout the country. One morning, as Gladys is teaching in the mission house, they heard a strange noise. Everyone runs out to see these little gleaming silver planes flying low over the city. The people began to wave and shout excitedly, and they had never seen a plane before. Suddenly, their world erupts as the bombs they drop explode as they hit the city, one after the other. One hits the mission house, and Gladys is unconscious until she is pulled from the rubble. She then runs to grab a first aid kit, but the casualties are overwhelming. Hundreds across the city were dead or dying. A small ground crew tended to the wounded, buried the dead, and comforted the living. One of the bombs also crushed the inn, so Gladys and her children stayed with another missionary who had moved in a few months before. She continued evangelizing and ministering, going with Mr. Liu or more often a few of her children. She would also journey far into the mountains, often to Japanese-occupied territories. The Christians in the villages would have meetings and sing songs, and some of the Japanese soldiers were Christians and would come join the choruses in Japanese, only understanding the tune. This creates an oddly beautiful picture. Yanchang was right on the battlefield and would change hands constantly throughout the war. When the Japanese occupied, she and her children would hide in the mountains and the Chinese took it back. And Gladys would often visit the Chinese troops when they held the city and have tea with the general and his wife. She got to know them quite well and they became good friends. One day the general is poring over a map and he points at an area. I wonder if the Japanese have gotten here yet. Oh yes, Gladys replied. I was there a week ago and they're all over the place. They came to my meeting. After that, she began to feed information on Japanese troop movements to the general. In her book, she writes, I suppose I was a spy, but I was Chinese and the Japanese were our enemies. They had despoiled our country, disturbed our way of life, and killed our friends. The Postal Service had been completely broken down, and it wasn't until 1941 that she even learned England was in its own war. Imagine going from thinking this was an isolated war between China and the Japanese, to discovering that in fact the entire world was at war. One day, while the Japanese held the city and Gladys hid in a cave with her family, the Mandarin came to say goodbye. I'll read directly from the book here. I have to come bid you farewell, and leaving this province and another governor will take my place. I've watched you ever since you came, Iwada. You love all our people and you work hard for them. It's God's will that I do so, Mandarin. That I have come to know. Before I leave, I would like to be received into your church and worship the God that you worship. Will you grant this? God will grant it, Mandarin. I replied, my eyes full of tears. In the midst of all this suffering and privation, my God was still working here. After years of sowing the seed, he was allowing me to see it bear fruit in the heart of this honored and powerful representative of old China. After the city had come back into Chinese hands, Gladys sees a group of battered, war-stricken women enter her courtyard. Her heart breaks for them and she begins to share the gospel with them. A few hours later, one of her sons, Timothy, and an evangelist friend run to ask if she's had any visitors. 
none except for the women. Well, a general wants to see you. And sure enough, a general enters the courtyard and tells her that she's under arrest. What do you know about me? He demanded. Nothing, she said. I've never seen you before. After raging and cursing, he said, you know more. You'll tell me and I'll release you. But she didn't know. And for the next two days, he left her under house arrest with no food. After the third day, the general came again and asked how she knew the private things of his life. If you tell me who told you, it will go easy for you. But she didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Who told you I was a sinner? I only know that the Bible says so, she said. Gladys picked up her Bible and handed it to him. As he began to read, she realized she recognized him from the courtyard. While she was sharing the gospel with the women, he had been in the background. For an hour, she walked into the gospel verse by verse. He argued in questions each section. What is this book? Who is this Jesus? After a few hours, he said he was too wicked to be saved. No one is too wicked to be saved. I am. The battle raged for his soul until evening, and he knelt down of his own accord, repented, and accepted the Lord. He immediately called his men together, told them what had happened. He said they were no longer going to be a bandit troop, for they were indeed a bandit troop. They were to be honorable soldiers. Any man who is willing to promise this may join me. He told Gladys he would join her for a Bible study later that day. She waited and he never showed. The next morning she learned they had taken off in the night, and she wasn't bothered by this because they were, after all, at war and he could have been needed somewhere else. Two years later, as the war still raised and she treated the Japanese and the soldiers in her courtyard, a dirty, ragged beggar hobbled in. She asked him to sit and sent her son Timothy to bring him some food. Don't you know me? the beggar asked. No, I don't. I belong to Jesus, he said. All he seemed to say was, I belong to Jesus. Timothy pulled her aside. Don't you know who he is? No. He's that bandit general. She turned and stared in shock and pity at the person who sat before her now. What's your name? she asked gently. No name. I belong to Jesus. She took the general home and nursed him back to health. As his mind improved, she learned more of his story. He waited that night for his men to show up, and instead they took him, stripped him naked, and tied him to a mule and took off with him. They continued to loot and destroy, and they starved and tortured him for nine months. One night, one of his men came to beg him to be their leader again, saying they had fared so much better under him. He refused. The man helped him escape, and he begged from city to city for the next year. He told everyone that he met that he belonged to Christ. That was all that he knew. Only Timothy and Gladys knew who he really was. To everyone else, he was big brother. Everyone loved him, and he loved them. The woman made him special little treats, and the men brought him precious raw sugar when they returned from their mule trains. He never grew strong again, weakened by abuse and exposure. He died within the year. Yan Chung mourned his loss deeply. They never knew his real name, but Gladys said she was proud to bury him as Wang Wei Da, my brother. As the work continued to rage, orphans in her care continued to grow, and she would have over a hundred at a time. One day, the general and his wife, the couple she would have tea with when they occupied Yang Chung, told her of a woman named Madame Chong, who had government-funded orphanages all over free and occupied China. You should ask her for help. Gladys wrote to her, and Madame Chong replied that she would take the children if she could get them there. Mr. Liu agreed to take the first batch of children. It was several days' journey across the mountains, and the children were very excited to go. The general came again to tell her the Chinese army was retreating, the fighting was getting worse. She needed to come with them. She told him that a Christian never retreats. The next day, a soldier came running up to her. He told her the Japanese were almost there. She needed to leave. Again, she said, a Christian never retreats. The soldier then showed her a wanted poster with her name on it. The Japanese were offering a hundred pounds for her, dead or alive. She told him she needed time to think. She sat down to pray and opened her Bible. Her mind was in turmoil. She didn't want to leave these people behind. And when she looked down, she saw, Flee, flee into the mountains. 
dwell deeply in the hidden places. She knew that God was telling her to go. She gathered up a bedroll, a coat, and tried to leave out the front gate. The Japanese were there already, so she left through the back gate and started across the stream. The Japanese saw her and began firing. She tore off her coat and threw it rolling under a bush. Bullets riddled her coat. She crawled and ran until finally the bullets stopped. She made it to the neighboring town where many of her children were. She decided as she was fleeing that she would take them into free China. Her friends started to dissuade her. It was almost a 300-mile journey through the mountains to Xi'an where they would be safe. She had no food or money with which to feed them. And taking a hundred children over the mountains, that's impossible. Maybe by yourself, but not with so many children. Just impossible. If I don't take them, they'll end up killed. It's only a matter of time. She told the children to get ready for a long walk. They gathered enough food to last until the next town. The next day, she took a hundred children, whose ages ranged from under three to sixteen years old, through the mountains. At first, the children were exuberant, running ahead, joking around, but it wasn't long before, being children, they began to flag and complain. I would die, my feet hurt. I would die, my tummy hurts. Exhaustion set in, and the older children became too tired to carry the younger children. Their marches grew shorter each day. She sung all the songs they knew they would chant and recite all the verses they knew. For twelve days, they carried on like this, sleeping under the elements, huddled together for warmth. Then at last they crested the mountain, and they saw a city hugging the banks of the Yellow River, and never had anything looked more beautiful. Gladys told the children they would get plenty of rest and food when they reached the city. But they reached the city and it was deserted, not a soul in sight. The children wept and wailed bitterly. Pressing into the city, they saw the Chinese soldiers and asked them for food, and they had none, and certainly not for a hundred children. They went back to the river to wait for a boat. All night she worried and prayed and prayed and worried. She said, I was the end of my tether. If only I wasn't saddled with all these children, I thought bitterly. Nobody else bothered about them. Why did I have to get myself and them into this mess? Then a voice said, I died for these children. I love them every one. I gave them to you to look after them for my sake. The next morning, one of the older children came to her and asked if she remembered the story of Moses parting the Red Sea for the Israelites. Gladys nodded. The girl smiled sweetly. Do you believe it? Of course. I would never tell you anything I didn't believe. Then why don't we go across? But I'm not Moses, Gladys replied. Of course not. But Jehovah is still God. Gladys felt the words hit her like a physical blow. Was she really so faithless? We'll go across, she told the girl. Let's all pray. They began praying in earnest when they were approached by a soldier. What are you doing? Don't you know the Japanese are coming? They patrol overhead all the time. These children are exposed and can be taken out by planes at any moment. Why didn't you take the boats over? Well, we couldn't get one. Did you think we were going to leave them out for the Japanese? I'll call one now. He whistled low and a boat appeared from the other side of the river. It took the children across in small batches until everyone was safely across. The children were welcomed in a town across the river and they ate to their heart's content, regaling the people with tales of their exciting adventure. All of us bigger ones helped carry the little ones, they boasted, and Iwada was carrying one or two of the sick ones. When we got to the river, we waited and waited for a boat. We prayed for the river to be open so that we could walk across what the children of Israel did across the Red Sea. But God knew we were so tired of walking, so he sent the boat, and that was far better. After a few days of rest, they took off again for a town with a train which would take them within a few days of Xi'an. The children had never seen a train before, and when it whistled and blew steam from the top, they screamed in terror and scattered, and they were gathered back onto the train with a great deal of effort. The train stopped still about 150 miles from Xi'an. It would go no further. The Japanese were shooting at the trains as they neared the river. They sat on the other side and fired over where the river narrowed, and it was not safe. 
they would have to walk over the mountains and rejoin the train on the other side. They pleaded with the station master for any other way. We've been on the road for over 20 days. The children cannot make this journey over the mountain. Sorry, I can't help you. There are millions of refugees all over China. After arguing back and forth, Gladys was offered food for the night and a two-soldier escort across the mountain. It would take two days to reach the other side. The mountain was so steep that without the soldiers, many of the smaller children would not have been able to make it over. Gladys herself was getting more and more ill with each passing day. And even though she was only four foot ten, she was still carrying a child or two up the mountain. When they reached the train station, they were told that no trains were moving forward. They had to keep walking without their military escort. What can we do, she cried. We've come so far. The children cannot go any further, and many of them are ill. The station master looked at her stoically. There is one way. But I bear no responsibility to anything that may happen to you. One train does go through every morning before dawn. It's a coal train. Sometimes the Japanese shoot at it, sometimes they don't. But they will certainly fire on it if they hear voices or see anyone move. You must keep the children absolutely quiet and absolutely still. Gladys gathered the older children together and told them the little children must not utter a single sound. We'll rest for a while, let the little ones fall asleep, and we'll move them still sleeping to the coal train. They won't wake up. They're far too exhausted for that. Now go to sleep until I wake you up. The children pleaded with her to rest herself. She told them God would give her strength and rest. She would rest once they got to Xi'an. After a few hours, she woke the older children, and together they carried the little ones and rested them gently on top of the coal. But now they were used to sleeping on hard, rocky surfaces, so they didn't stir. The train rumbled down the track. Gladys tensed and prayed. Not a shot was fired. They were far away from the danger when the children finally woke up. They were surprised and excited to be chugging along in a coal train and laughed at themselves covered in coal dust. The train stopped a few days' journey from Xi'an. They begged for food in the towns they passed and slept on the roadside, singing songs to keep up their spirits. Then finally, at long last, they saw it. Xi'an. Gladys compared it to seeing the celestial city in Pilgrim's Progress. They reached the city gate and the guard refused to open them. You can't come in, he told them. But I've come all this way from Yancheng to bring these children to Madame Chiang. We're overrun with refugees. We have no food. You need to keep going. She felt her spirit break within her. What now? They trailed along the city gates but could not get inside. Twenty days of travel only to be told no at their final destination. Someone took pity on them and told them of a Buddhist temple that was receiving children. It was one day's journey away by train. It was one of Madame Chiang's orphanages. When they arrived, they were given food and beds. They had made it. She and the children praised God. She rested for a day and then left them to preach in the villages. She couldn't think straight. Her mind was cloudy, but she knew she needed to do this. The orphanage staff tried to talk her out of it until she recovered. She told them that God would care for her. She arrived at the nearest village and immediately collapsed. I'm sure you don't appreciate these cliffhangers, but they're fun for me. I'm really excited for you guys to hear the rest of it next week. As always, thanks for listening to Mars and Missionaries. I'm Elise.